0: Well, just to catch everybody up in Galatians, those of you that may, uh, were not here your first time, or you may have missed some, uh, Paul here is talking to the churches in Galatia, and he's talking to the, the people who have been exposed to some religious leaders that have come in, or religious Jews that have come in and said, hey really to be saved you've got to do x y and z you've got to be circumcised you've got to follow this thing of the law and that and so they were putting rules and and regulations on them so that they could be saved they're saying you're not really saved unless you do these things and many people called them the judaizers you know the, the theologians they'll call them that and uh, these were just really religious Jews from Jerusalem that had come to Galatia and were saying, hey, you've got to follow the law as well. This Jesus thing is okay, that's, that's fine, but you need to follow the law. But And they had come back in right after Paul had done preached and came in and Paul had already established Christ as the only way that you've got to believe in your heart and confess that he is Lord. And that was the only conditions for salvation, that Jesus is the promise. And that we are heirs to the promise, which is Christ. And He is enough. He is sufficient. And that's what Paul preached. Well, these others came behind and saying, nope, we got to do this and that. And so Paul there, he began to explain and talk in terms of family. And talking about how that we are all sons of Christ. And this was different because so many people in the Greeks there in Galatians and stuff... Their gods that they had served before Christ and before they were saved, they were really distant from their gods. There, were, there was no relationship, and now Paul was coming in and bringing relationship. He was bringing family. Aren't you glad you're in the family of God this morning? If you've given your heart over, you're in the family, and that's what's so good. Hallelujah. So this morning, we're going to finish up Galatians chapter 4, Lord willing, and it's a lot of verses, but we're going to get through it today. And so we're going to look at chapter 4, and I'm going to read out of my grandfather's Bible if I can find Galatians. He even put these nifty tabs, and I still miss them sometimes. But in Galatians chapter 4, we're going to read a section here. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 20. We're going to read them all right now. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject. But you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? They zealously court you, but for no good." Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them, but it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labor and birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Let's go back to verse 12. That's a big mouthful, and we're going to break this down. It says, brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. Became like me. For many Christians, that may sound sound weird. Why is Paul saying, hey, be like me? Shouldn't we be telling people to be like Christ? Well, the key is in the next phrase where he says, for I became like you. What he was saying was, I used to be where you are trying to be right now. I was a Pharisee. I was one who followed all these rules. Be like me and let that go because you're not under the law anymore and receive Christ and live in freedom and liberty as I do. Be like me in that. So he was saying, be like me in this decision that I have made and what I have preached to you. Look at me and my example and how I live. I'm living in freedom. These others are trying to bring you into bondage. I was once like you. I became like you. In other words, he was, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Paul was extremely smart. He knew the law backwards and forwards. He knew it so well and he was so legalistic that he began to persecute Christians. That's what he did before he really gave his life over to Christ. and He had that, that uh, road to Damascus experience that many of us have had where it turned our life around. And here are these. They've turned their life around. And Paul, he's saying, look, I'm consistent in my beliefs. You can look at me and follow my example and what I'm doing. And church, to a certain degree, we can do the same. We can even say to others, hey, be like me. I'm experiencing a freedom and liberty, a peace. When I put my head on the pillow at night, I have peace Because I am in the family of God. I have received the promise because I have inherited that. All Christians should be able to say to others, be like me. John Stott said this, all Christians should be able to say something like this, especially to unbelievers. Namely, that we are so satisfied with Jesus Christ, his freedom, joy, and salvation that we want other people to become like us. And so this is the first appeal of Paul. And we're going to go over four appeals, and this is the first one. Become like me. That's his appeal to the church at Galatia. He's saying, be like me. Make this decision. And he said, look, just because you've done this, just because you have now started listening to these other religious leaders and you haven't been listening to me, you haven't offended me. I get it. You haven't injured me. That's what he meant by saying you haven't injured me. You haven't, I'm not offended. I'm just trying to get you to see because he's been, and we talked about Paul's tone here in the Galatians. He had to, he got a little rough here and there. He got some sarcasm in there. He showed how upset he was at this because these individuals have come in and they've come behind him and undone a lot of the work that he did, how he labored. Mm. So he says, look, I'm not offended. I just want you to see the truth. The second of Paul of uh, Paul appeals was remember how you used to respond to me. That's the second appeal of Paul. We see this in verse 13 through 16. You know that because of physical infirmity I preached the gospel to you at the first and my trial which was in my flesh you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? This is awesome. Paul apparently, not this part, but that Paul apparently, he had a physical infirmity at the time when he was with them. Matter of fact, it's what caused him to stay so long with them. And we know, and we don't know too, too much, and theologians, though, connected that in Acts, I believe it's chapter 14, when he was in uh, South Galatia in the city of Lystra, he was stoned there, and he was injured badly. Paul suffered a lot of persecution from a lot of these religious leaders that have been coming in here and talking. So because of that injury, it's, theologians believe that he stayed longer and stayed with the Galatians more than he probably would have. So that's what he means by here. He said, you know that because of the physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. I was here at first, and I, stayed be- I had to stay because of my infirmity. And you received me even though I was infirm, which was not part of the culture of the day per se. If you were weak, you weren't listened to out in the markets. You weren't listened to. If you weren't strong, you didn't have a good voice. You weren't able to do you know. But these people received Paul and the message that he brought. Why? Because, church, it was a message of hope. We serve a God of hope. I have hope in Christ Jesus. That's not some wishy-washy thing. Hope is faith in the future tense. I have a hope in Christ. Look, I hope, and I said this before, I really, really hope, and today's the season one the Redskins win. I really do. I hope they do. But that's not the kind of hope Paul talks about. (laughs) I've already said, I came in this morning, I told Rob, you know, uh, our lead guitarist, I said, look, they're going to lose. He's like, oh, be positive. I'm like, look, if I just come into it thinking they're going to lose every game, and then when they win one, I'll be happy. I'll be like, it wasn't something I expected, you know. They're ten-point underdogs today. They're going to lose, okay? That's my hope. (laughs) I hope they win. I really do. Whatever the infirmity was, it kept Paul in Galatia, and he was able to preach the gospel. And he said, my trial that was in my flesh, you didn't despise or reject. You didn't do that. You didn't reject me. As a matter of fact, you embraced me so much, that you would have plucked out your own eyes and given it to me if it would have helped me. That's pretty powerful. So what he was saying there is that we have a bond. He's saying to these individuals that he has preached to before, that he loves, that he has labored before, and he's saying, we have something, and you're allowing these people to come in there and mess that up. You're allowing them to take away the message. Remember how it was when you were with me. Remember the joy and the peace that you had when you gave your heart to Christ and you didn't have to follow these rules. You didn't have to be circumcised. You didn't have to do that. Put away the knife. Keep your pants zipped up. You don't have to do that. And and that's just being real. That's being honest. He's saying you don't have to do these things because that's what it feels like when you're doing rules. It's painful when you have to follow rules to live up. My children don't have to follow rules in my house to live up. They just already are. They are my sons. I have a daughter. They are my children. It's not something that they do. It's something that they were born with. And God says we are adopted in. And we're heirs. Hallelujah. Paul wasn't rejected. He's saying we were good before. No better than good. Listen, I'm not your enemy because I tell you the truth. In verse 16, he says, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Because I'm taking this tone, because I'm saying what I'm saying, have I become your enemy? Have I become your enemy because these ones have come in and they've talked bad about me and they've said, oh no, this isn't the way, you got to do it like this. Have I become your enemy? Remember how we were before? Church, it's hard when someone's deceived to show them. It's tough. The third appeal of Paul, beware of the affection the legalists show you. Verse 17 and 18, they zealously court you, but for no good reason. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them, but it is good to be zealous and a good thing always. You know, another word, not only what I'm present with, you've got to be zealous for the good things, not, not for this. They're zealously courting you for no good. Paul will admit that the legalists were zealously going after the Galatians. He's admitting, saying, look, I know they've given you all this attention. They've come. Legalism often comes wrapped in a cloak of love. Oh, I'm, this is for your benefit. You know, this is for your concern. Because if you do X, Y, and Z, it's just going to be so much better. Well, not necessarily. What are the, what's the motivation? You know, many cults that are out there, they use love bombing. Have you ever heard of that, love bombing? It's where they all, they, go, they get somebody, you know, one person, get them excluded from the group, get them out there. That's what these were, zealously courting you and pulling you out. And they want to just show them all this stuff and give them all this attention. It's like a sales pitch. If it feels like a sales pitch, church, go the other direction. It's kind of like those phone calls that come to my phone. The vast majority of them our sales calls. I can't believe how many of them I get. 1-800-SERVICE and all these things. And they come and they just ring my phone all the time. I don't even bother answering. Just all these numbers, all these out-of-state numbers, and they're calling all the time. The enemy will call on you all the time to follow rules. He will ring that number all the time. He will hit you where you know you're weakest and say, see, you're not living up. You're not measuring up. That's how he comes. That's how he comes to attack. That's what he does. He says, oh, you're not measuring up, so you better do this. You better do that. And he'll get you on that to make you think that you're not good in the eyes of God, that you're not acceptable to him. If you believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead and you confess him as Lord, you are acceptable to God. You are stamped with his approval. Amen. The fourth appeal, I love you like a father. Please listen to me. He says this here in verse 19, My little children, for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you, I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Look at this here. He says, I have my doubts, but I I, want to be present with you to change my tone. What, What is he meaning? What's he saying there? He's saying, look, this seems harsh what I'm saying and how I'm saying some of these things. I want to be with you so you can see me so I can plead with you because you know what? I look at you like, like you're my spiritual children. That's how I see you, the bond that we have. I taught you so much, and you responded to it, and you came into the fold. You came in, and you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, and you're, like, you're in the family, and I feel responsible for you. I wish I could be with you so I could change my tone and you could see how earnestly that I want you to see this. To not be giving into the rules, but to understand that grace is all you need. My grace is sufficient. That's what the scripture says. Paul said in another, My grace is sufficient for you. I mean, that's awesome. His grace is all that we need. He says my little children whom I labor and birth again. Paul felt like because he had gone before and he had labored teaching them, showing them. And he and he was comparing it to like birthing a child like like I'm birthing all these spiritual sons and daughters right here before my eyes and I'm laboring and he's saying I'm laboring again. I'm toiling for you. Hey, you shouldn't have to go into labor twice for the same child, right? You're supposed to only have one labor, you know. Now, you have many labor pains. Within that labor, I'm just saying you have one labor. And, you know, I have four children, and I was there with my wife through all four and all of the the labor. And, uh, you know, after each one, I'm looking at my wife, and she is just radiating. Despite all the pain, it doesn't matter. Paul, it didn't matter to him. Once he heard that his spiritual sons and daughters were being pulled away from the truth, he was going into labor again. He didn't care. And he probably would have done it again if he needed to. An appeal to them to change. Church, one of the hardest things, though, is when someone is deceived and has been deceived and been duped to change their mind. How many here could say you tried to change somebody's mind who was deceived? Something that you knew 100% was true, so you know what I'm talking about. It is not easy. It is not easy. And you sit there and you try to talk and it's like, okay, you're not hearing me. You're not hearing me. The only thing you can do, and this is why Paul, through all of these chapters and these verses, he's pulled out all these examples, these comparisons, these metaphors, all of this stuff is to get them to see, and maybe they'll see it in one of them. Just one of the examples, and we're about to read some more verses where he's giving an example, and he's going to contrast several things—six things, things actually—and we're going to go through them briefly. And he's using the Old Testament to show that the systems of grace and law—they can't exist together as principles in our lives. It's one or the other; they can't exist together. And here, before we get into this, I, I need to set this up because in Genesis, Abraham was married to Sarah, and see, everybody. Abraham was Father Abraham. We are all descendants of Abraham. He was the father of faith. Okay? And so, because of that, these legalists who had come in, they're saying, hey, we're children of Abraham. Well, here's the thing. Abraham was married to Sarah. And Sarah, when she was older, okay, Abraham being about 86-ish, all right, and here's Sarah being 76-ish, goes up to Abraham and says, we don't have a child yet. And AB, honey, I was looking in the washing pool, and I saw another wrinkle. I'm not getting any younger. And then I saw some more hair growing out my ear. No, I'm kidding. But she was like, hey, why don't you take Hagar, my maidservant, you take Hagar because I'm getting old and I, I, God promised you a child and promised us that we'd have this child and, and, and you would be great and all this and our descendants and blah, 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 but it ain't happening, Abi. I need you to go ahead and take Hagar as a wife and produce a son. So what does Abraham do? He takes Hagar and he has a son. And the son is... Ishmael. Now, look, this is a different culture. This is a different time. Now, that, that's strange in our day. But that's what happened. Okay, so now Ishmael, when he was about 13, the a bunch of stuff happens, and Sarah gets pregnant, and Sarah has Isaac. Now, after Isaac was weaned, all right, about two or three years later, when he's weaned, some stuff happened, and Sarah's looking at Ishmael, and she's not happy. And she says, I want him and Hagar out of here. Abraham's grieved, but he goes to the Lord. And the Lord tells Abraham, no, listen to Hagar, it's, or listen to Sarah. It's my will for Hagar and Ishmael to leave. I will take care of them and bless them. Do not worry. So he sends them off with a skin of water and something else, some other little thing. He didn't give them a donkey. He didn't give them a camel. He didn't give them nothing. He gave them those two things left. Now, that may seem brutal to you, but you know what? In that, Where they were, in the area where they, and how they were, it wouldn't have mattered how he sent them out. He could have sent them with all kinds of things. The only way they were going to survive was God. And because he was a, the father of faith, and he had the faith, and he knew, and God spoke to him. He said, send them on. He sent them on, and he knew God was going to take care of them. So see, sometimes when we read certain things in Scripture, we go, oh, that's cruel. No, 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 we have to look at the whole thing and understand what's going on. All right, look here, let's read this. Verse 21, tell me, and now he's going to make this example, using the Old Testament, using Abraham in this whole situation I just told you about. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son of the bondwoman... "...who uh, was born according to the flesh, and the son of the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Air Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, barren woman, who does not bear, break forth and shout." You who are not in labor, for more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who has a a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. Now, let's break this down. That's a mouthful. Verse 21, tell me who wanted to be under the law. Here Paul is directly speaking to those who promoted legalism and those who succumbed to it. And he said, do you even know what the law says? Do you even know what you're doing? Do you know what this means? And under the law, it means... It, and I'm going to read this from my notes, means it is what you do for God that makes you right before him. Under the grace of God, it is what God has done for us in Jesus Christ that makes us right before him. So under the law, what do I have to do? The focus is on what? My performance. That's what, the, what it means to be under the law. Under grace, the focus is on Jesus and what he's done. See, the Spirit within you will always point to Jesus, who is your way to the Father. Amen? But see, when you're under the law, there's no pointing to the Father. There's none of that. It's pointing into your works. That's how the enemy, that's how the enemy comes at you. He comes at you talking to you about your works. Under the law, we find fig fig leaves to cover our nakedness. Under the grace of God, we receive the covering, one through the sacrifice that God provides. It's that righteousness, that robe of righteousness from Jesus Christ. Amen? That's what covers me. So he says, do you not listen to the law? So sensing that he hasn't fully made his point, he says, Abraham had two sons. Since you want, and so here's what he's saying in that. He's saying, since you want to keep saying that you're of Abraham and all of that, well, you forget there was two sons. You're under Ishmael. That's what you're promoting and that's what you're doing. You're not under Isaac. Isaac was the promise. That's where it came through. Paul will admit they're children of Abraham, but they forget Abraham had two sons. So the first contrast that we see between Christianity and legalism is freedom versus bondage. Sarah was free. Hagar was not. She was a maidservant. She was in bondage. Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. The second contrast between Christianity and legalism is a work done by God's promise versus a work of the flesh. What did Sarah do? She came to Abraham in her flesh. She wasn't willing to wait on God. How many's done that before? Where we weren't willing to wait on God. We put it at his feet. We go and we ask God for wisdom. And then we step out and we just try to make it happen. Now God wants us to put some action to our faith. There's no, there's no problem with that. There's no problem. But sometimes when we don't see it happening like it should, we get depressing and we'll press, and we'll press, and then we'll go before God. God, why isn't it happening? Uh," And we start worrying. But God, when he promises you something, it's so. That's faith. See, God had promised to Abraham, and Abraham believed, but here comes Sarah. It's a work of the flesh, giving Hagar to Abraham. So that's the second contrast that we have, a work done by God's promise versus a work of the flesh. Who's the promise? Jesus he is the promise. Warren Worsby said this, Legalism does not mean the setting of spiritual standards. It means worshiping these standards and thinking we're spiritually spiritual because we obey them. It also means judging other believers on the basis of these standards. If you find yourself, hear me church, if you find yourself very judgmental and you're looking at others and comparing yourself to others, you might be a legalist. You know how Foxworthy, really you say, you might be a redneck. Well, you might be a legalist. Next week, we'll do a little more of that, and we'll play, you might be a legalist. Okay. We'll, 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 go, we'll go through that. But see, you know, if you're looking, and you're just, well, they did that. I'm, that's sin. Oh, my goodness. That's wrong. There's no way they should have been looking at that material and watching that. I can't believe they did that, you know. And see, we get into that judgment. What does the Scripture say? We work out our own salvation, right? With fear and trembling. Verse 25, Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. The third contrast between Christianity and legalism is this, first century Jerusalem versus the new Jerusalem. The first century Jerusalem was in bondage. That's what he's saying here. They were occupied by Rome. So, he's saying to them, hey, you are, (laughs) you are of this. The present corresponds to the present Jerusalem. Hagar, you're of Hagar, and you correspond to the present Jerusalem. But see, the Jerusalem above is free. In the end, in the culmination of God's kingdom, he's going to set up the new earth, the new Jerusalem, it says here. The new heaven, the new earth, on the earth, here, the new Jerusalem. Amen? I got one yeah. Amen? The new Jerusalem is free, church. The fourth contrast between Christianity and legalism. Many more versus many. What does that mean? Let's look at it. Verse 27. Rejoice, rejoice, barren woman, who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. Paul's quoting from Isaiah 54, verse 1. And he's referring to the time where the Jews who were in exile were coming back. They're going to come back because, see, they were, they were captured. That's during the time there, and the Babylonians had coming in and taken them. And so Isaiah is prophesying, and he's saying, look, hey, they're coming back. The comparison here is that the new covenant, which is through Jesus, will have many more followers than the old covenant. The old covenant is the present day Jerusalem. And we can see that. These religious ones who came in there just trying to deceive the Galatians, the thing is, is those that even today, we can see it now today, those that follow the law and those that don't, the ones that don't, there's Christianity in the world numbers-wise just dwarfs them. I I mean, in the first century, Christianity spread like wildfire. Even though they were burned at the stake, fed to lions, stoned to death, all kinds of things. But yet, Christianity grew. Why? Because we serve the one true almighty God. And Jesus was enough. And his grace empowered them, despite staring death in the face. Look, what does that mean for us today? What you're going through, even though it may look as awful as staring death in the face, it may even look that bad. Trust in God. Trust in God and what He's promised. The fifth contrast between Christianity and legalism is persecuted versus persecuting. In in verse 28, it says, He who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, okay, persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So it is now also. If you go back and you look in Genesis, once Isaac was weaned, they had a celebration. And Ishmael mocked him. Ishmael mocked. That's when Sarah, right after that, said, "Uh uh-uh. I want him out. I want him out. See, what we think is cruel is God knows. He sees the heart. He understands. And he knows what's going on. And so here he says, Paul brings this up. He's saying, persecuted. Him who was born according to the Spirit. Those who were under the law stoned, literally stoned the early Christians for their beliefs. That's persecution. And those who are the legalists, they will persecute those who are free. I've been in their houses. I've sat there before. I've listened to it. And they're well, that, that, you know, and they just, you know. They've come up to my father before because he said something down here down front and mentioned grace at church. And they come in, well, you didn't say this and you didn't say that. They might get the wrong idea. He's like, I didn't say that. They twist and they do it. They've been doing it for years. Hey, Amen. They've definitely done it to me. Lord knows. And you can't tell them you can't tell them. You can try. Here, Paul is doing it. I, 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 you know, I don't know what the results are. I just hope that Paul and his appeals and the contrast they made and what he's telling them to do that some of them took it to heart and went back to what Paul preached. They went back to their first love. David Cusick says this, The legalists, represented by Ishmael, have always persecuted true Christianity, represented by Isaac. As we walk in the glory, in the freedom, in the miraculous power of this new covenant, we should expect to be mistreated by those who don't. This is true. The sixth contrast between Christianity and legalism is inheriting all and inheriting nothing. Verse 30, one more time, For the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. We are heirs of God through the principle of grace, not works. Can we all stand? We are heirs through grace, not works. There is nothing else that can put you in right standing with God other than His righteousness, what He did for you, and you put that robe of righteousness on. Works can't do it for you it cannot do it for you. And if you've read Galatians chapter 5, you know it's just chocked full of good stuff on how we're supposed to live. And we can just go ahead and say this now in chapter 5. Led by the Spirit. Not led by what we do. And again, the law has a purpose, and, and I brought a set of Ten Commandments up here, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Be sure and get on looking look at it. The law has a purpose. It has a function. But we can't go to God. We don't approach His throne with the law. Like, oh God, thank you, Lord. I, I didn't kill anybody today, so I'm good. Thank you, Lord. I didn't lie. Thou shalt not lie. I didn't lie. This week, hey. you know, No, I don't come to God that way. I just come as a son, as an heir. My children don't come into my presence talking about, well, I did this and I did that. Aren't you happy, Daddy? They don't do that. They know that doesn't get them anywhere with me, for one. What are you trying to get? That's that's the first thing I, I think. What are you trying to get? But that's what legalism is. Think about it. They're trying to get something by doing something rather than getting it by believing, and just being. You don't need to do, you need to be, and be led by the Spirit. This morning, let's go to the Lord. And if anything in here, you know, touch just just bring it before God. Those areas where you feel like the enemy maybe has tricked you into believing that, oh, I've got to do this, this, and this to measure up. You measure up to God. Don't let the enemy lie to you in that. This morning, I feel that so strong, just like we had that there before the service about the burdens and laying that down. I feel it so strong not to allow the enemy to dupe you into believing you are something else other than a son in the house. Let's bring that before the Lord. Father, right now, Lord, we thank you for your presence that's here in this place, first of all. But, Lord, I thank you that your grace is enough. Your grace is sufficient for me. Lord, we trust in you. We don't trust in works. Lord, I thank you that I'm accepted. I thank you that I'm forgiven. I thank you that I'm sealed. I thank you that I'm a son, that I am an heir in the family of God. Lord, I thank you for that, Lord. And Lord, I thank you that as I go here today, that nothing, I say and decree and declare that nothing will change my mind from that proclamation that I am a son and I am accepted in your sight. Lord, you said, therefore let there be no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So Lord, I say I am in you. I find myself in, in you. I am saved through what you did for me. Lord, I thank you. I thank you that it is done. It is sealed for me. And I will not question it no longer. I will not beat myself up any longer. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Hear me, church, really quick. This came to me while we're praying. The enemy wants to get you out of who you are so you can't help somebody else come into the family. See, that's his goal. If he gets you messed up and torn up enough thinking you don't measure up, you won't have the the confidence to be able to help somebody else. You won't have the this being led by the, you're not being led by the spirit. Why? because you're all torn up thinking you're not good enough and you're trying to do good works so that you can make up for the wrongs you've done. There's nothing you can do to make up for the wrongs you've done. Jesus is the only thing that makes it all up. Amen? Amen.